HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. everyone, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kara Warren, and on today's show, we have Tom Perry, Chief Sales Manager of Shelburne Farms, a cheddar producer located in Vermont. And Tom has been a cheesemonger in the New England scene for many, many years and was a previous winner of the DZTA scholarship. And he's an overall good friend to everyone in the cheese industry. So I'm stoked. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kara. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I know. This is, we have been really chatting about this one for a while and um, it's my first episode for the fall winter season so uh, I am just so pleased to to have you as this first cool person on cutting the curd I'm just over the moon about it well yeah I'm uh, excited to be back uh, the last couple of times I've or actually all my previous times I've been here uh, to talk about uh, the Daphne Zeppos teaching endowment uh, whether it be as a recipient or to promote people applying but this is nice to talk about Shelburne Farms. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to talk about you a little bit too, but I think let's start with um, like what we were just saying. Let's start with Shelburne Farms because I feel like it's a leading cheddar producer of Vermont and it has uh, multiple levels to it. It's not just a cheddar producer, but I think it's better if you sort of give us an overview about it and its mission because there's just so many facets to it that I would love the listeners to learn about. Yeah, there are definitely a good number of levels of the complexity, as we, we like to call it. Uh, we, we say engage with the complexity of Shelburne Farms. And definitely cheddar production is one of the more tangible assets that we're known for producing. But uh, the primary goal, or the primary focus, rather, uh, of Shelburne Farms is actually sustainability education. Our, our, our mission is uh, learning for a sustainable future. And we what that means is you know we're not only learning how to become a more sustainable enterprise and um operation but we're also uh encouraging others to learn for a sustainable future and you know the the journey that we took to get 
where we are is pretty interested and i'm happy to share that story if you're so inclined oh yes 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 that, that was the follow-up question i was going to ask you exactly that like what has inspired it and what is like the background on this because um i've been to the property to shelburne farms and it's gorgeous but it's obviously of another time and i feel like we should start from the beginning then and explain that to kind of build up to where shelburne is today so if, if you don't mind i'd love to review that yeah. Uh, so Shelburne Farms started uh, in what we'd consider it's, it's you know, modern or, or, you know, modern iteration as a uh, Vanderbilt family uh, summer estate uh, that has been converted into the sustainability education campus. And basically the the initial background you know not counting you know the previous you know uh indigenous occupants of the land and you know the the european colonization of, of the americas starts in the mid 1880s after the death of billy vanderbilt who was the oldest son of cornelius vanderbilt who basically ran all of the vanderbilt enterprises that um were part of you know the, the industrial age and the robber baron age and the gilded age and he died in 1885 um he uh basically doled out or, or uh the 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 largesse of uh his family fortune to his i believe eight children and um the youngest daughter was a woman named Lila Vanderbilt. She married a, uh, a doctor uh, named William uh, Seward Webb. And uh, they, um, William was employed in the, the Vanderbilt, you know, uh, family businesses. So he, he was tasked with finding railroad routes from New York into Canada through upstate New York and Vermont. And while he was up here, in Vermont, he really fell in love with the area and he set up, you know, smaller homes or when he would bring him and his family up to uh, the Burlington area. And that's where they would spend their summers. Whereas, you know, the, their other, the, Lila's brothers and sisters were in Newport or, you know, in the Jersey Shore or in, in upstate New York. So, when Billy died in 1885, Lila uh, was uh, given a $10 million inheritance in 1885 money. And Oof, that's um, a lot of money. <laughs> that is a lot of money. So, so yeah. I, I, I always say to folks to give people an idea of the kind of money we're playing around with. The entire operating budget for the state of New York in 1885 was $9 million. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, fantastic. I love that. They had some that's walking great. around money. Um, yeah. And what they did was, uh, through a series of real estate agents, they purchased up, I believe, 32 individual farms in, in the town of Shelburne. They used different real estate agents to kind of coalesce this one ginormous property uh, on the shores of Lake Champlain. And they turned it into their summer uh, getaway. Um, half of the property was for them to use and enjoy. And then the other side of the property was a working farm. They called it a working model farm. And what they did was they built these impressive, you know, uh, not quite Victorian, but definitely Gilded Age uh, structures that were used for farming. Uh, if 
you know anybody that's been to shelburne farms one of the th- first things they they comment or you know notice is the incredible and beautiful large buildings and you know the majority of those were used for you know practical agricultural operations and i mean i, I love it i think it's very much like um it's like a lot of turrets and yep. a lot of shingles and then it's just yeah i mean it's uh, if if anyone is listening to this right now and has a moment google shelburne farms and look at it visually because it's it's very impressive it's very picturesque anyway go a on, lot, Tom. a yeah. lot of folks will call it the uh, hogwarts of cheese uh, I, you know i wasn't sure if that was in place or not i held my tongue on that because i was like you know i don't know if i should call it hogwarts it, it is very much a hogwarts of cheese though that's fantastic okay totally cool. we agree she- Fewer cool. fewer few, few witchers at witches and witches, uh, witches and wizards, but uh, yeah, definitely yeah, uh, a lot of magic <laughs> going on. Yeah. Um, and uh, what they wanted to do with this property was they wanted to be an example of how the you know progressive science and agricultural innovation that was being developed in this time frame could be used to improve you know outcomes in terms of yield and animal husbandry and all these other facets uh that were you know basically rudimentary to human survival and endeavor and 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 all that so um they they would bring in like the most recent you know agricultural innovations like if uh an animal is sick they would bring in the best vets from either new york or uh, boston um and they'd share this knowledge with uh the the local populace um so it's really always been educational from the beginning actually in in a way like or at least there was like a mutual uh aid kind of facet to it you know maybe there was some money and profit uh okay maybe it wasn't as honest as we're trying to keep it today well (laughs) well maybe not as altruistic let's say let's say that um i I don't think there was any skullduggery uh by any any means but um but so so they, they they tried doing that and what they were actually uh hoping to do their, their primary interest was in horses and in the 1880s you know investing in horses sounds like a wonderful idea because everybody's using horses for transportation and for you know uh plowing the fields and and, and what have you so you know i it, and i forget if we brought you to this building but there's another building that is a little bit for deeper into the property called the breeding barn mm-hmm. um and i think it was under construction at the moment so i but i i will get there one day i have faith but yeah go on it, it's yeah. impressive nonetheless it's uh, if you can describe it for the listeners and, and and so the breeding barn is in, in the southern acres of the property and it's it was for 40 years the largest freestanding wooden uh structure in the western hemisphere <laughs> for like 40 years um <laughs> so and if you've been there it's it's ginormous it's huge and basically it was built so that they could breed what I consider uh, or what I've always called a more fuel efficient horse. They wanted <laughs> to crossbreed the hackney horse, which was used for conveyance in, in the New York area, uh, with the Morgan horse, which is native, which is native to Vermont, um, and uh, basically build a, a smaller statured horse, but or breed a more smaller statured horse with literal more horsepower, but would produce less waste. So in, in a way, it was 
again, like kind of, you know, tailored with insustainability, like, you know, how can we produce this more efficient animal that takes in less feed and produces less waste and uses up less space? So I guess it's always been kind of the DNA uh, of the organism, uh, of the property. Yeah. Yeah, I, I see that. So there's always been that mentality, at least. And and now if we jump into today's scene at Shelburne Farms, um, I always think of it as a cheddar producer. Um, I'm not sure which aspect we should talk. Should we talk about the cheddar production um, oh, a little I bit I think next? we've got a lot of time to talk about the cheddar because like it, it all ties in together. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so go ahead. Tell me, tell me what's first you'd like to talk about. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the first thing that we want to talk about is the education. So, you know, on the property, even after, you know, the Gilded Age, you know, it was a conventional dairy farm. It had a sugar bush for maple syrup. And, you know, just as is the case today, you know, dairy farming isn't the lucrative enterprise that people make it out to be. And so, there was an offer by the president of NBM, IBM to purchase the entire property so that he could develop it and then uh, have the old Shelburne house for his property. And then the, the, the rest of the property would be turned into like subdivisions and residential areas. Um, but there was, there was always the cows and the sugar bush and the, the kids who are now running the organization, their dad came to them and, and, and he, they said, you know, please don't sell this property. We're going to find to make it work. And for whatever reason, their dad said, okay, fine, do it. And what they did was <laughs> they nice. really embraced the environmental and ecology ecological movements that were taking hold in the late 60s and early 70s and they started doing summer camps and, you know, basically nature walks. Stuff that I think, you know, we being, you know, in 2023 take take for granted that there was just, you know, that there are just always these appreciative elements of, of nature, you know, uh, you know, and, and more living in harmony with nature. Whereas, you know, there was always such a strong desire to like kind of conquer nature. Um, Shelburne Farms, uh, they, they started doing these summer camps and like taught people about all the plants and like all the birds and like how all of this ties into like uh, a, a intertwined and you know interwoven uh ecology that that we all need to to live and prosper because uh, otherwise there could be disastrous uh you know consequences yeah. to man and beast and yeah. so um so but we've grown from just doing summer camps to now doing you know all this educational outreach to you know yes we'll have school programs that will come in but we'll also have educators from all over the world that will come through and uh take courses on how they can teach sustainability in their own uh their own locales whether it's you know on a state you know, city, county level, uh, or, or on a national level with, with, with some of our international students. Oh, wow. So that's that's very interesting that you guys have become a, like a blueprint for others. I didn't realize that. That's very cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically then you have, okay, so you have the cheese making, you have the sustainability education. Um, does that mean you guys have like a tasting room then for people to come into and check things out? Or is it like, how do you, how do you get people in there to, to understand, or they, they seek you out? Basically it sounds like people are seeking you out. How, how does it work best for Shelburne right now? 
so people seek us out. We're, we're you know open to the public, you know, because we do have all this land and and, and property and, and building. And when people do come to the farm, you know, during the high summer season, they can take a tractor ride uh, up to what we call the farm barn, which is the main barn uh, that people associate uh, the property with, and there they can engage with you know. Uh, various farm animals. They can engage in activities like hand milking or machine milking a cow. Um, they can learn about uh, sheep and, and they can, you know, engage with chickens. But then we literally have a, a, an area called the hub, which is our cheese making viewing area. And we'll also have a member of on staff where people can try a couple of varieties of cheddar uh that we have for sampling that day. And then in addition to that, at the main entrance, we have a welcome center, which is essentially our farm store, where we'll also sample other varieties of cheddar and um, where people can try and buy our cheese. Nice. So is there, are there, can you say like how many people are working at Shilburn Farms? And um, is it, it's um like are there classroom opportunities or it's just all in the field right it's it's really like it's it's in real life it's not it's not like a school like a classic traditional way it's more like you know hands-on learning all the time like the 4-h programs right or something like that i mean it, it, it's a it's a little bit of everything it, it, it's definitely you know out in the field education there's also you know dedicated areas of the farm that are used specifically for education so we can have groups of you know 30 some odd people you know able to take a class and engage with our educators and in addition to those you know field spaces and um, you know, educational spaces on the property. We also send our educators out into the, uh, to various other organizations or schools. Uh, we have, since the pandemic, especially, we've uh, developed a pretty strong virtual education uh, program that we we didn't really have before. But now we're able to engage with maybe excuse me, twice to three times as many people as we were prior to the pandemic, uh, which which is actually really great. And people will seek us out because we're um, a designated hub on like the UN uh, sustainability. Um, th th there's a UN map uh, that has all these organizations that are committed to uh, environmental sustainability, and, and we're one of the hubs for the Northeast, so people will come and seek us out. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I had, I'm had i going to have to check that out. I had no idea that existed, um, and I'm kind of just learning. Every Cutting the Card episode I do, I'm sort of learning more and more about, like, sustainability and how people are approaching it, and, um, you know, there's just so many challenges in, you know, you know, getting to be more sustainable. Um, and I, I believe I saw online even like, um, you have a person that deals with like, uh, carbon neutrality or carbon zero. I saw, I even saw, I was like, wow, they're really, they're working on this. Like there's science on this, like so much science that I'm like terrible to talk about it. But I mean, um, how do you feel about that? Like carbon sequestering? I mean, am I saying that right? Is that something that you're, you're aware to aware of and do you promote it in your cheese sales program this kind of work that's going on at Shelburne Farms? So we are definitely aware of the carbon sequestration and we're, we've basically got a goal to be carbon neutral 
by 2028. And, you know, it's hard to kind of throw that into a sales pitch when you're talking about cheese. <laughs> yeah. Because it doesn't like naturally roll off the tongue. Like, you know, in addition to the sharp buttery flavors that you're going to encounter with our cheddar, we're also sequestering thousands of tons of carbon. Um, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. For those who are aware, I mean, you do sales in, in New England and Vermont. Maybe somebody's asking. But anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it, it, it's kind of like one of those like kind of bonus things. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, we're like non-GMO verified and we're humane certified and we're doing all the sustainability work. And, and like, I, I think you kind of need to like be vague about it be, be, because like I think if you get too into the details on what we're doing like people just glaze over um but all all the little components and all the little changes that we are making are you know pretty pretty important um to to making us carbon neutral and you know honestly like the 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 biggest you know the biggest thing that we've done is converting to no-till agriculture which we did back in the 90s uh we 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 decided to do we, we Shelburne Farms used to be, you know, planted with corn and barley and, you know, the cover crops that you, you hear about in, in agriculture to restore, you know, the, the nutrients to, to the soil uh, up until the mid-90s. And then we realized that every time we, we broke ground to, to plant these crops, we were releasing thousands of pounds of carbon that had been sequestered by, by the plants the previous summer back into the atmosphere and Mm. that that was kind of counterintuitive so we've spent the past 30 some odd years restoring the 1400 some odd acres uh that we have to either to basically native uh grasslands you know we've encouraged you know the, the the native fauna to to take hold and and you know proliferate uh, over the past 30 years. So it's, it's really cool that, you know, not, not only are we sequestering all this carbon, but we're encouraging, you know, the species that are native and beneficial to, you know, the landscape that we're occupying. Yeah. And it's, and it's more beautiful too. So it's good for the world and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's, that's a good thing to do. (laughs) Right. Um, now do the cows get to graze, how long do they get to graze on this beautiful land? Is it rotational grazing? Let's bring it back a little bit to cheese because I love sure. being environmentally friendly, but I want to talk cheese with you. Absolutely. Uh, so, <laughs> um, yes. so what's going on with the cows there? What breed is it? How long do they graze for? Tell me Tell me more about that. So I guess the basic primer on our cheddar cheese is we're a farmstead cheddar producer. Uh, we're using our herd of brown Swiss cows. Uh, brown Swiss, for those that may not be aware, have uh, are known for the, their hardiness, especially in, in you know winter-like environments that we have here in Vermont. But they're also well adapted to heat as well. So that's especially good to keep in mind in this era of climate change. Um, and they're also known for their elevated levels of butterfat. So that will produce, you know, a slightly creamier texture in our cheddar than, say, what you might find from our peers that are using Holstein cows, which is still definitely the most common breed here in the United States. Well, and I was going to ask you, Tom, um, like, I don't know many other farms with that breed of cow. Like, do you know any? Uh, you don't have to say them, but are there other farms? There's not that many, right? <laughs> there aren't. 
and you know, I, I should know if there are a lot more. No, but it makes it makes you guys unique. That's my point about mm-hmm. Shelburne and the milk going to. That, that's what I, I'm thinking is one of the unique factors about right. Shelburne Farms. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, I I agree with you that I feel like in at least in terms of American cheesemaking, there aren't a lot of exclusively brown Swiss herds out there. Um, I've been noticing like Jerseys are definitely a lot more common um and obviously holsteins but in terms of like you know specific you know more heritage breeds i guess i I know sam frank would argue with me (laughs) when he say on swiss and jersey aren't really heritage breeds but um to us they are how about that i'll I'll, I'll give i'll give it to you and sam we can fight about it later (laughs) (laughs) fair enough um and and but yeah uh you know we're, we're one of the few ones that are Using brown Swiss and, and instead of the whole scenes, so um, it, and they get it, to be it, outside for how long? Is it like most of the year? Because you were saying they're pretty hardy. Is it like uh, nine months out of the year? You think they get to be outside, or is it? Is it no? Like, because yeah. it's Vermont. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking Vermont and it's weather. You're right. I'm sorry, um, I gave too much time. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're too generous. But you know, we, we were we they have been able to stay out longer uh, for, for the past couple of years. Like uh, I think we traditionally would bring them in sometime around, you know, mid October cause it would start, you know, either getting a little too ruddy out there or a little too cold, but now the, the cows can stay out until sometime in November. And then we'll, we'll usually keep them uh, in one of the barns or, or close by um, during the months of uh, December through April is the, the, the good barometer and then releasing them back out onto the pasture in, in, in May. And to answer your question, yes, we do rotational grazing through different paddocks uh, that we have on the farm. No, um, that's the way to do it though. I mean, that's, I mean, why not? Um, and then, um, well, I'm trying to think, Tom, should we, should we take a quick break before we go into like some cheddaring talk? I feel like let's just do a quick break, uh, for the sponsor. Hey everyone, you're listening to cutting the curd. I'm Kara Warren. I'm here with Tom Perry and we'll be uh, right back. This episode is supported by HRN business members selected by Will Studd. Will Studd is the host of Cheese Slices, a unique documentary series about artisan cheese. Over 62 episodes filmed across 20 countries over two decades are a fabulous resource for anyone who loves cheese. Visit willstud.com, that's W-I-L-L-S-T-U-D-D.com, to learn more and to see the hand-selected special range of quality cheeses from Europe. Selected by Will Stud supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren. I'm here with Tom Perry of Shelburne Farms. We're here to talk cheddar and cheddaring. And then we'll we'll talk a little bit about Tom's life in cheese, because I feel like he's a mystery man, and I, I need to know more. Um, uh, but let's first start off with, Tom, would you mind giving us, just because sometimes I like cheese one-on-one, a quick run-through on uh, how cheddar is made at Shelburne Farms, if you don't mind? Absolutely. So, Every day, we uh, one of our cheese team members goes down to the dairy, and they're going to pick up milk from the dairy, and we're going to transport it in a haul truck. And that 
uh, milk is comprised of that morning's milkings and also the previous evening's milking. And they're going to drive it about a mile from the dairy over to the farm barn. And they're going to snake a hose uh, through the wall and attach that to a, uh, a milk pump. And then they're going to pump the, the milk into uh, a stainless steel vat. Um, that stainless steel vat uh, holds about 7,000 pounds of milk. And it's interesting. And I only bring that up because, like, we kind of, you know, the, the, the vat kind of determines how large our herd is. Um, mm. b- because if we are producing too much milk, it's going to overflow over the vat right so (laughs) i see where you're going yes oh wow okay so so because we only have the one facility we we only make one batch of cheese per day and if we have more than seven thousand pounds of milk then that means it's just gonna slosh all over the place and that that's not a good scenario for anyone so you know (laughs) we're, we're working in concert with the dairy team to make sure that you know they're not producing too much milk, but they are producing milk, you know, even during like non-traditional, you know, uh, breeding times and, 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 you know, high oh. milk production. Um, okay. So, yeah. so the, sorry for that little aside, but. No, no, no. Um, Nobody likes uh, spilled milk. That's what I took it, it, away exactly. from that. And <laughs> um, but yeah. So anyway, we fill the vat with milk yeah. and, and, we'll and warm we're it up. to, yep. <laughs> So we'll warm up the milk and we'll add cultures and we'll, we'll then add the rennet. We'll then cut the curd. Um, and, <laughs> Sorry, and, I had to giggle there. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's very name appropriate. Yep. And um, we attach paddles on and, and we stir the curd for about an hour and a half. And, you know, this is pretty common uh, in, in not only cheddar production, but in most cheese production. I, I found, and I think you could probably agree that like, you know, most cheese starts with like about the same four steps, give or take, you know, uh, and then it kind of goes into the different directions. So once we're done stirring the curd, we're actually gonna drain uh, all of that whey out because, you know, with the coagulation of the milk, you, you separated the, the solids from the liquids. And then once all that drain, whey is drained out, we're going to form a couple of banks on either side of that stainless steel vat. And, and you know, all that curd wants to do is just knit back together and, and kind of form this solid mass. So what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, use that to our advantage and we're going to have these solid masses of curd. But then we're going to cut those masses of curd into bread loaf sized, you know, uh pieces of coagulated yeah coagulated curd loaves is is a a wonderful way to describe it and we're gonna start stacking them on top of each other and this is a literal cheddaring process where where we're taking these large masses of curd and we're using basically the force of gravity and the weight of the curd to expel even more whey um and even though like this is a step that is associated with cheddaring. Mm-hmm. It isn't required to make cheddar in the United States. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. So uh, according to the FDA, really all you need to be considered a cheddar is hit certain moisture targets and have certain acidity levels. No there's way. No, yeah, there, <laughs> there's no single established you know, production method uh, huh. that, that, that can be, that has been prescribed to, uh, define what a cheddar is. 
Um, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're here to explain this because I actually didn't know that. So um, thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, traditional and, cheddaring. Yeah. And I so like this that. is the traditional cheddaring that was developed by Joseph Harding back in England in the 1840s, give or take, and was kind of spread throughout England and then found its way to the Americas. And that's kind of the traditional method that was adopted for many years before large-scale industrialization of cheese production. Um, so Definitely. we're gonna we're gonna go through this cheddaring process. It's gonna go from this big like bread-sized loaf of curd and it'll essentially like start to stretch out and get pressed down and it'll look like if you're you know familiar with like what whole slabs of bacon look like, you know, a whole pork belly that's been cured and unsliced. It'll end up yeah. looking like, like that and be about the same thickness and length. Um, once that's, um, you know, reached its target acidity, we'll run it through the mill. And um, basically, that's where, like, the cheese curds that you think of for, like, poutine or, like, squeaky Wisconsin cheese curds, that's, like, what you're producing. Uh, and, and they're about, you know, a couple of knuckles on your index finger, yeah, I like to think uh, like cheese doodle fries. size. I know that's right. what comes to mind when I think of it. But I mean, you know, knuckles work too. Whatever you yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> cheese doodles is a you know a little more you know universally uh, accepted form yeah. of measurement. It's a form um, of measurement. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we we have our our cool curds, the squeaky curds, and yep. uh, what happens next then? We're gonna add salt because. Oh, yeah. Without salt, uh, cheese is very, very bland. Um, mm -hmm. It's just cooked milk. And <laughs> um, basically, cheddar is one of the few cheeses, if not the only cheese, that is uh, salted directly. You know, a a as you're probably aware, like a number of cheeses get brined. Yeah. There are other cheeses get that get dry salted. Uh, cheddar is one of the few cheeses where salt is directly added into um, the curds. And uh, as part of the manufacturing process. Okay. And then um, we're going to add that in three doses because what you're doing is you're essentially shocking the curd and you're expelling more whey. And if we threw all the salt in it at once, all that salt would literally get washed down the drain. Mm -hmm. So, so when uh so so this allows us to retain salinity and continue to expel more moisture. And then we're going to put it into forty pound. Uh, forms and we'll press it overnight and the next morning uh, one of the cheese team will come through and they'll vacuum seal it and put it in a box and they'll let it do its thing for anywhere from six months to three years uh, here at Shelburne Farms. Well and then it's truly your baby because then it's like time for you to sell it to the world. It's Tom's cheddar cheese. It's Tom Shelburne Farms <laughs> cheese. <laughs> Get it out there kid. You know Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of coordinating all these cheese debutante balls uh, so to speak. So are, are you? I need to be invited to one. Let me know. <laughs> I want to know what should I wear to the cheese debutante ball? <laughs> that's where that's more of a Tanaya Darlington kind of activity oh, uh, know, to, to give her true. full credit. All right. Um, well, also, let's give a quick shout out. Tanaya is doing a cheese ball in Philadelphia sometime in October. If you like yep. that sort of thing, go look her up. She's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put some cheddar in a prom dress and send it on down. That so. sounds fun. Well, this also <laughs> goes to another point. You do actually, you do kind of run um, a debutante ball. You run the Midnight Mongers for ACS. <laughs> um, and I, that's sort of the closest thing we get to in a debutante cheese ball, I think. I mean, how, does, how much fun is that for you? And uh, what would you love to see next at the Midnight Mongers? 
Well, so you're at ACS in uh, Des Moines, yeah? Yes, of course, always. Yeah, so, so I, I I do have to say, I, I so for those that aren't aware, um, Midnight Mongers is something that we started back in 2018 in Pittsburgh at ACS as kind of a, a it was hoped to be more of like a moth story hour uh, kind of event. Uh, I think that's what we originally intended. Like we want to have people like get up and share stories. Um, but then it just turned into like, cheese parody karaoke and um <laughs> and like people didn't care about like or they, they weren't as interested in like you know our kind of like, stories and how we wanted to engage that way people just wanted to hear funny cheese songs um so we did that at um acs in pittsburgh and richmond and then obviously had the pandemic um and we reignited it um at, in portland and uh for acs and then it, it had always been you know a traditional karaoke dj but in des moines we, we had a live band and i was really against a live band because i was like oh man like you've got people that are gonna be like mm-hmm. nervous enough about singing in front of people that they may or may not know or that they do business with and like and then you're going to compound it by adding a live band yeah that would scare the shit out of me (laughs) yeah Um, Yeah. i i I, I felt the same way you did i was completely wrong people loved the live band so i really feel like there's no going there's no going back um oh my goodness are we gonna do it so this is my only thing this is my only small small super small critique and you can hate me forever for bringing this up but can it be in darker spaces i feel like hotel (laughs) lighting is just not my favorite it's the only detail i i would love changed about midnight mongers because everything else i love about it i just Uh, want the lighting to be better that's about uh, it yeah so i i feel like um actually they did did a pretty good job in in des moines in terms of like ambiance you know Mm -hmm. It, it may not have been like dark enough for 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 everybody's liking but you know it, it definitely had a good kind of loungy vibe um so so uh but this is your mission for buffalo for for yes. just like for kara warren to show up it needs to be dark right, <laughs> like, right. that's all i care for i, 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 I might get you a custom blindfold uh that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that's no. it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what i want um okay cool cool well now i also need to bring it back to who you are as a person because tom i think like you're one of the coolest, most awesome people to meet in the cheese world. And I don't actually know your origin story. I just know you as this awesome Tom Perry who sells Shelburne Farms cheddar cheese. Like, where where, and when did you start in cheese? Um, yeah, can, let me know more about that. Yeah, so um, uh, my origin story is pretty bland uh, in the sense of I think I got into cheese the way a lot of the best people got into cheese. And thank you for those kind words, by the way. Um, th- th- that means a lot. You know, I-, I think we've known each other for about a decade. Uh, a decade plus, every- Tom, but I don't yeah. want to age us too much. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and honestly, like, I got started by working at Formaggio Kitchen. And everybody thinks I was a cheesemonger at Formaggio Kitchen. I was not. Um, I was actually part of the catering team there. And obviously, Ooh. for those that are familiar with Formaggio Kitchen, it's one of the world's best cheese shops. And I say that without hyperbole, like it, it is 
one of the standards I feel for what a tea shop should be and 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 can be um, in terms of the way that they engage with customers and the way that they seek out all these amazing products. And I was there, you know, making tuna salad and you know chicken salad <laughs> in the deli counter, and we'd have to do these catering platters, these cheese platters. And I'd go up to the cheesemongers, um, and I'd say, "Hey, I, I need some cheese for this platter," and they're like, "Okay, here you go." And as I got these teases that's how i was engaging with cheese and i would try them and i'd be like oh i like this and you know we got a pretty decent discount uh like a 20 percent discount so i'd buy little pieces of cheese and i'd try different ones to get more familiar with it but i was way in over my head and i, I left formaggio to work at a couple of restaurants in boston and then i moved down to the providence area and I was a chef actually at a daycare facility, the first daycare facility in the United States um, in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And I was was going nuts making like, you know, chicken nuggets and, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and mac and cheese for, for, you know, toddlers. Um, uh, But, you know, it was a very rewarding job, but it's just sort of like I missed that connection to fine food and fine dining. Mm-hmm. And there was a store called Farmstead that was on the east side of Providence, and they were doing a pretty big expansion uh, of their retail space and their their um, restaurant space. And they needed more cheesemongers to kind of fill in uh, during these expanded hours. And... I said, well, I don't really want a full-time job. I really like what I'm doing, but, you know, I, I'd like to be connected to this. And they're like, yeah, sure. And because I had that experience at Formaggio and uh, I, I knew the owners and all that, you know, that helped get me in the door. And, you know, I would go in on the weekends and I, I'd sell cheese. And every time I'd go in, I'd be like, okay, what do you want me to sell? What, what's new? Can you tell me about this cheese? And, and that's how, how it went, went. Like, I just tried all these different cheeses. And eventually it got to the point where I was responsible for doing um, all of the domestic cheese ordering uh, for Farmstead. And this was just at the moment when places like Jasper Hill and um, like Green Mountain Blue Cheese and Cato um, Corner, like, Kata I mean, Corner. Like, it was just a good time. That's like the, the ultimate time right there, you know? Exactly. And, and I had to call these places directly and, you know, I formed all these like really strong relationships with, with, you know, you know, it was back in the day when like Mateo would order the or answer the phone at yeah. Jasper Hill and be <laughs> yeah. like, "Oh, I'll put you through to sales," and 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 away you go. Um, yeah, I love it. So, so uh, I took that, and you know, but from there I w- wasn't satisfied with just selling cheese. I wanted I wanted to learn. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a cheesemaker, right? and I think every cheesemonger in their life has that inflection moment of like. I, I can make cheese, you know, mm-hmm. I can make really great cheese and then people can sell it or I can sell it. And then, and I actually spent a year and a half at Cato Corner Farm um, a, a, as an assistant cheesemaker and like their, their market and uh, farm store cheesemonger. And it was there that I learned that I actually don't want to be a cheesemaker. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's not because of anything that they did. It's just sort of like, you know, it, it, it be it's very clear that a lot of cheesemaking is, you know, dishwashing and sanitation and, and all that. Um, and that is not what I wanted to no, do. No, you, you need to be out in the world. Exactly. You know, if you're extroverted, it's yes, I, I get that. So, is, and so did you go to Shelburne right after Cato? Is that, or am I missing a, a thing in between? 
No, I, I was out in Chicago uh, for a couple of years. Uh, my ex-wife and I, uh, she was from Chicago and she wanted to go back. And I was like, I like Chicago. Yeah. Um, and but, but Vermont got you back. That's the thing. Yeah. I, I know you were out. That's what I'm, it's starting to come back to me now. You were out there for a little bit, but then Shelburne found you. And now you're living your best life in Vermont, I think you are. I mean, yes. I, I, no, uh, <laughs> uh, it's hard not to live your best life in Vermont. Um, I am I am definitely very happy to be back in Vermont. Uh, Vermont is definitely home. And it's definitely where I'm going to be for well, a long, long time, if not the rest of my life. It's so beautiful. It's so, I, especially by the lake there, it's so beautiful. Um, so just, we're almost done with this episode. I just want you to review real quick for the listeners, what type of cheddars exist for sale and how can they find them um, if they're looking to buy them? Sure. So all of the cheese, cheddars that we produce at Shelburne Farms are raw milk cheddars uh, made from our own herd of brown Swiss cows or farmstead or non-GMO. We're humane certified and we have a whole lot of sustainability practices going on. Uh, we've got our six-month cheddar, our one-year cheddar, two-year cheddar, and a three-year cheddar. Those are our common age profiles that you can find. Uh primarily in the Northeast, but, you know, scattered throughout the country, um, all the way down to like the mid Atlantic and out in pockets on the West coast and in the Midwest and, uh, down in the deep South. Um, and those come in anywhere from half pound to 40 pound formats. Um, and do you do a smoke cheddar too, or am I making do, that up? We do a smoke cheddar and we also okay. do a cloth bound cheddar. So, Oh yeah. Uh, duh. duh. We, I gotta we, find you know, it's been a while since I've had the cloth bound, but I am I am partial to the two year. Um, that's what I used to buy because I love it. It's a great profile, and um, that's what most people know us for. Um, yeah. the, the the two year cheddar is what we consider to be you know the classic New England Vermont cheddar uh, cheese profile with that like really intense forward acidity or sharpness, if you will, and yeah. then. A little wave of minerality in the middle and this nice little sweet uptick uh, on the back end. Um, it, it, it's it's really fantastic and it, it's one of my favorites. My personal favorite is the six month cheddar. Oh, um, I like that. that. Was, Insider knowledge. Okay, go on. Yeah. That was the last cheese of ours that took a uh, ribbon at ACS back in 2018. And, um, you know, it's not a cheese for somebody that's looking for something that's going to like really stunned them. It's more remarkable in its simplicity and its nuance. You know, it's got what I consider to be, you know, the tangible fundamentals of what we are as an organization. It's got this nice buttery aspect to it, like kind of like buttered popcorn or buttered bread. Um, and I attribute that to the herd of brown Swiss cows that we've got, um, which have that elevated level of butter fat. And then it's also got this grassy element to it too, because we are a pasture-based um you know, dairying operation. And, you know, that really comes through in the milk. It's not, it's not just kind of talk, you know, the, the, there is a grassy note to it. So I feel it's like the most tangible representation of what we're doing at Shelburne Farms um, without having to visit us. No, that's, that's perfect. And if you had to have um, a last meal, you're stuck on an island and uh, one of the ingredients is Shelburne Farms cheddar, uh, what would be the, the meal you would make? What's your go-to snack with this? Oh, grilled cheese all day. Grilled oh, cheese. wow. That was immediate. Yeah. I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't need to think answer. twice about it. I don't need to think twice about it because, you know, be, you know, something that is really unique about our cheese is like it is so creamy because 
other brown cis cows um and people pick up on that even in the more age profiles and like it just melts wonderfully um in ways that i haven't seen other cheddars melt Oh, dang, I'm going to have to get me some of the Shelburne Farms cheddar and try this out. You know, you're the first guest, I think, to throw at me grilled cheese right away. Usually people go pretty <laughs> over the top. Uh, this is totally a Tom Perry move, everyone. <laughs> grilled cheese. Straight up. That's it. They're not messing around with anything. Um, Keep them guessing. Keep them yeah, guessing. Totally. Tom, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show today. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Uh, it's been far too long and uh, can't wait to see you again soon. Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. Well, I'm just going to give everyone a little information about how to follow up. Um, hey, guys, if you want to find Tom on Instagram, he's at Thomas the Monger. If you're looking at Shelburne Farms, go to at Shelburne Farms or go to their website, shelburnefarms.org. Plus, you can follow us at Cutting the Curd and myself at Kara Warren. And please listen and subscribe to Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, don't forget to give us a five-star review. We like those. We hope you give them to us. Helps us with the podcast world. Um, yeah. And thanks, and eat more cheese. Cheers. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.